Last Lord's Day evening we looked at two situations that God's people could find themselves in that bring with them a high potential for discouragement. The first was when our service for God feels like a waste, a waste of our time, our energy or our abilities. When the world or or even other Christians at times look at our service for God, uh, when they look at how we spend our time and when they're so they see so little in terms of concrete results and they ask why this waste and yet the verdict of the Lord Jesus is she has done a beautiful thing for me he has done a beautiful thing for me the second situation which we looked at that brings a high potential for discouragement is when we're serving God in unglamorous situations when day-to-day life feels mundane when perhaps we once served God in a different sphere, but now we find ourselves fighting to try and preserve a lentil field. Uh, there are, uh, I'm sure there are many in the UK who, who can remember what it was like when they, they served God as part of a, a bigger congregation, a flourishing congregation, uh, and yet those days are past now and it feels like they are in uh, just a small patch of lentils. And yet, as we saw last week, lentil fields need defended because God's people need fed. And if a lentil field is lost to the Philistines, it's going to be very hard to get it back. And that brings us up to tonight, uh, where we're going to look at a third situation from this chapter that brings with it a high potential for discouragement. And that is when we're left serving on our own. There's actually a couple of God's people in this chapter who find themselves in that situation. One is Shammah in verse 11. He's the guy who defended the lentil field. Uh, We read at the end of verse 11 that the men fled from the Philistines. Uh, They thought, forget this lentil field, we're out of here. But Shammah stood his ground. Uh, But particularly tonight we want to focus on Eliezer in verse 9. We read there that he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. Uh, So his fellow Israelites, they left uh, and yet the next verse goes on to tell us he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And Eleazar teaches us at least two things. Uh, firstly, he, he, he teaches us to get on with the work whether others get stuck in or not. Get on with the work whether others get stuck in or not. Maybe you haven't heard of Eleazar before, but perhaps you have heard of a man called Valiant for Truth. He's a lesser-known character in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, You'll find him in part two of Pilgrim's Progress. Though uh, I realise that even uh, people who have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress uh, may only have read part one rather than part two. But if you're not familiar with the story, we first meet Valiant for Truth with his sword drawn and his face covered with blood. He's just fresh from fighting uh, for his life against three enemies. Wild head inconsiderate and pragmatic 
And he tells those who come across him that he fought and and had been fighting until his sword clave to his hands. His sword, which we're told is a Jerusalem blade, represents the word of God, which the Apostle Paul tells us is the sword of the Spirit. So where did John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, where did he get the idea of someone who fought until his hand clung to his sword? Well, it has to be Eleazar here in verse 10. The man who struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to his sword. But despite being the inspiration for a a character in perhaps the most famous Christian book of all time, Eleazar is a pretty obscure Bible character. And yet God noticed and highlighted what he did. Andrew Willett was a minister in England in the 1500s. He says of those named in this chapter, the names and acts of these worthy men are not suppressed, but committed to memory, demonstrating that the Lord will not forget the faithful service and labor of his saints. The Lord will not forget the faithful service and labor of his saints. No matter how obscure a setting uh, that faithful service and labor is carried out in. Just as the Lord Jesus would say of the woman who anointed him at Bethany, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. As I said last week, maybe the reason the Bible loves lists is because God never tires of naming the names of his people. So Eleazar is not a well-known Bible character, but there is an intriguing possibility that he was there on one of the most well-known days in all the Bible. Some commentators think that verses 9 and 10 here are describing the aftermath of David killing Goliath. Hopefully this story, the story of David and Goliath, is fairly fresh in our heads. Uh, We looked at it two weeks ago in the morning. And it's the bit after Goliath is killed where we're told that the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the Philistines, uh, the wounded Philistines fell on the way. So why do some people think Eleazar was there? Uh, you probably haven't uh, read the, the story of David and Goliath in a children's story Bible and seen, seen Eleazar with his sword drawn. Well, verse 9 tells us that Eleazar was with David when they defied the Philistines. Now, that could have been any number of times, uh, but the word defied is used a lot in 1 Samuel 17. And it's used here. Uh, Yes, it's used there of what Goliath did rather than of what David and his men did. But by facing up to Goliath, David was doing the same back to him. Goliath was defying the God of Israel and so David was defying Goliath. As well as that, we have a a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 11 which tells us that that the events described here happened when David was at Paz Damim, which is probably the same as Ephes Damim, where David killed Goliath. So we we can't say for sure whether this is describing the same occasion as when David killed Goliath. 
But it does seem to be describing the same place. And it does seem to be describing an event that we as readers are meant to know about. And so if this is the aftermath of David killing Goliath, the picture would be of the rest of the troops and his contingent giving up pursuing the Philistines. Goliath is dead. Uh, the men of Israel are chasing the Philistines, but, but a, whole, a whole troop of them give up. Uh, but apart from one man, and he keeps going until his hand clings to his sword. Like Gideon and the 300 men who were with Gideon in Judges 8, Eleazar was exhausted yet pursuing. And he has to do it by himself. Well, I guess in one sense he didn't have to do it by himself. He could have just ran away like everyone else, but he didn't follow the crowd. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has, has a great sermon on Eleazar. Uh, and he says uh, of Eleazar, he was a man of marked individuality of character. A man who knew himself and knew his God and did not care to run away merely because they ran. He knew himself and he knew his God. Everyone else is doing it with no argument with him. Everyone else is running away, so what? No one else is taking the responsibility seriously, so what? God may have given us ten talents, or he may have given us one talent. But either way, on the day of judgment, we will be called to answer for what we did with what God gave us, not to answer for what others around us did or didn't do. Too many Christians spend their time complaining about what other people are, are doing or not doing with their talents rather than just using their own. Eleazar is a great example of someone who just gets on with it. He just gets on with it. And yet serving on your own or, or serving with very little help does bring its own temptations as well as the temptation to discouragement there's also the temptation to spend a lot of time blaming others for not playing their part. But as Spurgeon says of Eleazar, I do not find that he wasted time in upbraiding the others for running away, nor in shouting to them to return. But he just turned his face to the enemy and hewed and hacked away with all his might. Perhaps we face the temptation to be despondent about the state of the church whether the church in general or our church. But again, our responsibility is for ourselves. Our calling is to be faithful in the place that God has put us and in the role he's given us. And it's always a lot easier to complain about others than get on with the job God has given us. To quote Spurgeon again, he says, It's very easy to pick holes in other people's work, but it is far more profitable to do better work yourself. Spurgeon asks, Is there any fool in all the world who cannot criticize? I mean, you don't need any qualifications to be able to, to criticize. You don't need any knowledge to be able to criticize. And it's not something for us to remember if we find ourselves being critical of others. It may be that our criticism is right, but it's also true that any fool can criticize. 
And so we often see that high levels of criticism are usually paired with low levels of service. Many a church has been criticised over how they do evangelism. And yet they could justly reply to their critics, we prefer our way of doing evangelism to your way of not doing it. We prefer our way of doing it to your way of not doing it. As Spurgeon sums up, Therefore, if thou be wise, my brother, do not cavil at others, but arise thyself and smite the Philistines. If you want to be wise, don't cavil at others, but arise yourself and smite the Philistines. Sometimes we need reminded or we need to remind ourselves that our own responsibilities are not reduced by the laxness of others. Uh, there can be the, the, the temptation to, to feel, well, if people around me aren't serving God wholeheartedly, there's no point in me doing it. But surely the failures of others should lead us to strive harder and not to slacken off. Again, I, I can't improve on Spurgeon so I'll just quote him he says are your fellow Christians worldly you yourself should become more spiritual and heavenly minded are they sleepy be you the more awake are they lax be you the more strict are they unkind be you the more full of love set your watch all the more strictly because you see that others are overcome and be you doubly diligent where you perceive others are, are negligent. He says to, to gather motivation from the shortcoming of others, the shortcomings of others to live a nobler life. In other words, the failures of others should not be for us ammunition for criticism. Uh, but they should be motivation for service. The failures of others should not be ammunition for criticism, but they should be motivation for us to serve all the more diligently. So firstly, tonight, get on with the work, whether others get stuck in or not. Uh, the second thing Eleazar reminds us of is that it's better to have a bloody sword than a rusty one. It's better to have a bloody sword than a rusty one. The thing about Eleazar that made John Bunyan take notice of him in Pilgrim's Progress was the bit about his hand sticking to his sword. Eleazar had struck down so many Philistines that after a while he couldn't have let go of his sword even if he wanted to. Bunyan elaborates on this a bit as he introduces Mr. Valiant for Truth who says that his sword stuck to his hand as the blood ran through his fingers. Uh, pretty, pretty graphic. Uh, now, the Bible doesn't actually say whether his sword stuck to his hand because the blood acted like glue, or whether it was because his muscles effectively locked in position. There are examples of both from military history. Apparently there is a Highland sergeant at Waterloo who had so much blood coagulating around his hand as he struck people down that it had to be released from the sword by a blacksmith. Uh, and then 50 years after that, during the massacre, massacre of Christians at Mount Lebanon, a man called Sheikh Ali Ahmed's hand so clung to the handle of his sword that he couldn't open it until hot water was used to relax his muscles. 
And there's another story of, of a sailor who fought so hard to stop men from an enemy ship boarding his own that, that after it was over, he couldn't open his hand to let go of his sword until it underwent surgery. Now, we, li- we live in a world where burnout is a real thing. But let me ask you this. Would you rather die with your hand clinging to your sword or with your sword rusty because it is so rarely used? Would you rather that they had to put the sword in the coffin with you because they couldn't get it out of your hand or that they couldn't find the sword and they weren't even sure when the last time it was that it had been used? So what is the sword? Obviously for Eleazar it was a a literal sword, uh, but how can we apply this today? Well, like Bunyan, we can take the sword to represent the Bible. Uh, Mr. Valiant for Truth says uh, of his sword that its edge will never blunt and that it will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit, uh, which is a reference to Hebrews 4.12, which says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we could take the sword in this chapter as a picture of the, of the Bible and someone going to the grave with the sword in their hand. Think of someone witnessing in the hospital to, to the doctors, to the nursing staff up until their very last moment. Or we can take the sword as a picture of active service in the Christian life which won't look identical for all of God's people, uh, which will look different at different stages of life. Uh, But we're all called to service. We all have sin in our lives, which we're called in both Romans and Colossians to put to death. Uh, So a lot of this military imagery from the Old Testament is used in the New Testament in terms of of fighting sin as well as going out with the gospel. And it's always easier to fight the liberals, to fight the government and whoever else, even our fellow Christians, than to fight the sin in our own lives. If there was as much energy in the Christian church put into fighting uh, the sin in our own lives uh, as it's put into fighting even other Christians at times, we would be in a much healthier place. So we're to take up the sword as we fight the sin in our own lives. But we're also to take it up as we seek to go out with the gospel. Jesus has given a commission to his church and that commission is go and make disciples of all nations. We don't all have the same role to play in that commission, but we do all have a role to play. And as we fight, as we do it, as we fight the sin in our lives, as we take the gospel out, remember that we do so in God's strength. If we come away from these verses thinking, whoa, look at all that Eleazar achieved, then we've totally missed the message. For a start, the name Eleazar means God has helped. So if we were to ask how how did Eleazar manage to do what he did, we would literally be asking, well, how did God has helped do what he did? And just in case we we miss the name, 
It's spelt out for us in verse 10. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. What an illustration that is of how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility aren't opposed to one another. What was Eleazar's responsibility? Well, his responsibility was not to follow the crowd, not to withdraw like everyone else. His responsibility wasn't to do nothing but to rise and strike down the Philistines. And his responsibility was to keep on doing it until his hand was weary. And yet who gets the glory? It's God. As Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, Whoever serves is to serve through the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And Eleazar did that. He served in the strength that God supplied. The victory was not won without Eleazar, and yet it was not won by Eleazar, but by the Lord. The victory was not won without him, but it was not won by him, it was won by the Lord. It may be, may be that we couldn't be accused of being slackers, it, it, it may be that we are weary from the fight, but are we serving in God's strength Or are we trying to serve on our own? And if we are fighting in his strength, that will be seen by actively relying on him in prayer. Uh, The sword of the Spirit must be accompanied by prayer. If this is the aftermath of David and Goliath being described, uh, all this would tie in very well uh, with God's anointed king having just won the great victory. Uh, If If he hadn't, if David hadn't beat Goliath, uh, the people would still be rooted to the spot uh, and terrified, uh, as would we be if Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. But because he has won the victory, we can go out and fight in his strength. And we can fight in light of the victory he has already won. And we could add, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he has already sent out. So what excuse could we have for having rusty swords? The Lord Jesus, he was nailed to the cross that we might let go of our sin. Even those sins that cling so closely, even those sins that so easily entangle it, As we think about the the sword uh, clinging to his hand, uh, we could ask the question, is there anything that has got such a hold of us that it clings to our hand? That can be be true in a good way or it can be true in a bad way. It could be true of the gospel, that it has got such a grip of us that we couldn't let it go. No matter uh, when someone came and said, look, the Bible, it's full of contradictions. No matter if someone said, uh, said, Christianity is just so intolerant. You can't believe that in in our society anymore. We say, well, the gospel, it has got such a grip of us that we can't let go. That would be a great thing. But on the the other side of the coin, it's the same with sin. Uh, Sin can can start off and we can be holding on to it. We can be uh, just 
playing around with it, holding on to it lightly, but it becomes it becomes attached to us, attached uh, as uh, as with uh, a cobweb, something that we could easily shake off. But then that cobweb becomes a string, and the string becomes a rope, and the rope becomes metal, and eventually we can't let go of it. And that's a, a really dangerous place to be. Even the, the worst uh, sinners, the worst criminals in our world, very few of them set out to end up where they did. Uh, there are very few people who think, well, one day I'm going to grow up and become a murderer. But they take one step and another step and another step and, and they end up doing things that if you told them 30 or 40 years before that they would have done that, they would be, they'd be horrified. Uh, but that's where they end up because sin, it, it grabs a hold of us. And the only way to have our hands released from that sin, it isn't to, to go through a surgical operation, it isn't to, to apply hot water, but it's to apply the blood of Christ. Only by being joined to him will we let go of our sin. Even those sins that cling so closely, those sins that so easily entangle, as Hebrews chapter 12 puts it, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so the Lord worked a great victory that day. The men returned only to strip the slain. Those who had withdrawn came back. And wouldn't we love to see that, by the way? Those who we thought were gone for good. Looking back and being unable to deny what God was doing through us and coming back never to withdraw again. Sometimes we can be tempted to think so many people have started off the race and not finished it that there's no hope. But if in God's strength we persevere, if in God's strength we keep going, who knows what the Lord will do? Who knows who he'll bring back? as long as we keep going. And so, get on with the work, whether others get stuck in or not. And remember that it's better to have a, a bloody sword than a rusty one. And pray that God would use it and use us to win a great victory. Amen. We'll close with a psalm which combines themes from this morning and tonight. It's Psalm 67c. Psalm 67c, praying that God would show mercy to us. Uh, but why? Uh, so that verse 2, the message of what the Lord Jesus had done, has done could be taken out to the, the nations of the world. Uh, the tune is 231 web psalm 67c god shows mercy to us not that we can uh, withdraw when the times get tough not so that we can follow the crowd but that we can play our role in this great commission that he has given us so psalm 67c the whole psalm will stand to sing <laughs>